As we move up higher in the pyramid, we encounter what we call special retention incentives. These are designed for a very select group of employees who are deemed critical for the organization's success. And this ensures that these key individuals who are most likely to receive these awards are financially motivated to stay with the company through the most critical phases. Welcome to the Executive Compensation Podcast. On this show, we discuss all aspects of executive compensation. Whether you're a compensation committee member, a seasoned compensation professional, or just curious to learn more about executive compensation, this show is the answer. Each episode brings you a focused and actionable interview on specific topics of executive compensation. This episode is brought to you by Meridian Compensation Partners. Meridian works with compensation committees to ensure the most effective processes are in place to go beyond mere compliance with governance requirements and create healthy, dynamic relationships between the board, management, and its advisors. Meridian helps boards use compensation to attract and retain critical talent and to make informed business decisions that will link pay and performance, drive business results, increase shareholder value, and mitigate potential risks. Learn more at meridiancp.com. Welcome to the Executive Compensation Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Harvey, and on this episode, I'm joined by Bob Romanchek and Mike Withy. Bob is a partner working out of Meridian's Lake Forest, Illinois office, and Mike is a lead consultant working out of Chicago. Bob, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having us today, Ryan. Sure. So today we're going to be discussing executive compensation in the context of mergers and acquisitions. For many companies, mergers and acquisitions are a key strategy for growth and business transformation. M&A transactions bring a unique set of compensation challenges. The uncertainty of M&A creates a potential retention risk for key talent. And additionally, achieving M&A related objectives is often critical to driving shareholder value. So today we're going to explore how executive compensation can assist in retaining key talent and drive desired behaviors. Bob, transformational M&A transaction is a relatively rare occurrence. For a typical executive, they might experience a major M&A transaction, let's say once in their career. So why should we be spending time now considering executive pay in an M&A situation? Right. Consider what's happening externally in the economy right now, actually for the last couple of years here. Uh, high, maybe continually increasing interest rates, inflation, other factors, uh, the whole M&A level of activity has been quiet. That being said, there has been continually a baseline of activity happening. I can attest to that. And really due to the private equity market, there's still so much cash out there looking for a home. Inevitably, we've got smaller kind of staple on transactions continuing to happen. Will we get back to the early 90 days where we have big deals and stock for stock exchange? I'm not sure. However, I think along with the baseline transactions occurring now, sooner or later, the interest rate market is going to break. Although I know economists, it looks like there's a prediction maybe midway 24, near the end of the year next year, interest rates might start trending down. And I do think as soon as that happens, that may open the floodgates. And I think you're going to see a pretty significant uptick from the baseline level of transactions. And thereby, now is the time. I would don't wait to get your exec cop programs properly in anticipation of any type of transaction. You should be prepared now on a clear day. And that's what Mike and I want to talk about, some very specific items within exec comp programs that you should be thinking about preparing for that inevitable day when we get that uptick in transactional work. 
Yeah. I mean, definitely something that's critically important to the success of the business and something you want to be prepared for. So why don't we explore some of the various pay elements and how those interplay with M&A transactions. You know, Mike, I want to start with you. You know, one of the first things I think that companies ask when they are facing a potential M&A transaction is how are we going to treat outstanding incentives? And so let's explore that a bit. Maybe we start with long-term incentives. How do you typically treat a long-term incentive in an M&A situation? And what are some of the considerations we should be thinking about? So we all know that retaining talent during a capital transaction is it's a complex challenge. It requires a comprehensive strategy. And we often describe this strategy as a pyramid. And at the base of that pyramid, we have our long-term incentive plans. And these are crucial because it really sets the stage for how employees view their future with the company. When a company is undergoing a transaction, the first thing employees will often think about is what happens to my long-term incentive plans? If the provisions for these grants are unclear or unfair, you risk losing talent. Therefore, it's really essential to have equitable change in control provisions. And the market has really moved towards double trigger or long-term incentive plans. And it's primarily being influenced by proxy advisors and asset management firms. However, a practical issue arises when the transaction involves a private equity firm. And in such cases, there's often no stock to roll into. And that really necessitates a single trigger to cash out the equity. So it's crucial to have a provision that allows for a double trigger, except when the buyer can't or refuses to roll awards forward uh, to hit the second trigger. So it's an important aspect to have. If I could add just one thought to that as well, from a practical perspective, you've got three different legal documents that may control what happens with the long-term incentive. And the first, obviously, is the omnibus long-term incentive plan approved by shareholders. Oftentimes, although that has changed control provisions, it says, unless you provide otherwise, here's what happens. And as Mike mentioned, double trigger acceleration upon the termination related to change of control. Oftentimes, however, the individual award agreement contains the specific treatment for each grant and each vehicle on what happens. So you can see right there, those two documents, you might have a conflict. And then third, if you've got an executive with an employment contract, might be a late-term top executive joining the company, there might be change of control provisions there as well. So between those three documents, it seems like if we have a conflict, it's long-term incentives and what happens. And you've got to really look at all three of those. And really on a clear day, you should work to make sure that you've got consistent treatment between the three of them. Oh, good points. And maybe just to pause real quick for some of our listeners who may not be as up to speed on some of the terminology, when we talk about triggers, a single trigger versus double trigger, single trigger is typically the event of an M&A transaction itself, what would be commonly called a change in control. So the actual closing of a deal is trigger number one. The trigger number two is a constructive termination of employment. So when we talk about something triggering on a second trigger, what we're talking about there is a deal happens and there's a termination as opposed to the more kind of generous treatment would be to say, you don't even need to be terminated. If there's just simply a deal, certain things happen. Great points. And I think, Bob, you know, good thing to, to point out that I guess if we're going to start somewhere, let's start with the plan documents and really see what the current treatment is. And does that make sense? So maybe we'll shift now to annual incentives. So there's the long-term incentive category obviously a big part of compensation. What about annual incentives, Bob? Is that anything we should be thinking about there in advance? 
Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about this whole change of control area with executive protections, the annual bonus plan is the plan where I see most often a complete absence of any provisions, which is problematic. And it simply comes from the standpoint that we used to have 162M million dollar deduction rules for a little while. That was the only reason you would legally need an actual formal legal plan document for your executive short-term incentive plan. So prior to that, and now that those exemptions are really gone, I think companies have reverted. They've got good communication materials explaining what you have to do to earn a bonus. Yet the lack of a formal legal document like you have with your long-term plan and award agreements means that often don't really consider putting change of control provisions in the annual incentive plan. And so what happens? Yeah, you have a private equity come a transaction, they're going to buy you out and you realize my God, we're going to be nine months through our 12-month bonus period and our bonus forecasting. It looks like we're going to get near a maximum 200% payout. We have no provision. And so PE closes and you say, oh, by the way, we should get this. And out of the kindness of their heart, they're not going to give you something you don't have and make you know, cost more. So if you don't have formal provisions that they've assumed, that's a problem. So you definitely should have your short-term incentive plan covered and you should have something that says that you're going to get a prorate of bonus payout based on the number of full months in that 12-month bonus plan year before the transaction close or at the transaction close date. But it's halfway through, you'll get 50% of your bonus. And importantly, in general severance, that probably would be based on actual. There's a one-off termination. It could be bad performance. That's why you've got a one-off termination. In change of control, it's better. And now you can do this to be based on target or some non-discretionary number. So target is very often uh, covered prior your actual average of the prior three years. And why do you want it based on target? It's really a fairness question. Everybody bonus plan is based on an income earnings type goal to some level in the P&L statement, higher or lower. But transaction, there's a lot of expenses involved and inevitably those properly are going to be pushed in that stub year. So you could get actual, you know, 50% per rate of actual and actual, even though you're trending high, once you add all those transactional costs, the end up is going to be, you're going to get zero. So in all fairness, looking at a target and pro rate is the way to go for that. So bottom line is make sure not only you have a non-discursory number, you actually have formal provisions that are assumed if the organization is acquired. So one follow-up there, Bob, you had indicated, and it's my experience too, that many companies don't even have a formal annual incentive document, you know, a legal document. It might just simply be a resolution of the board or some other kind of more loosely defined plan. If they don't have a plan document, should they be putting that, that provision in their severance plan? Is that where you would generally see it go? Yes. Yeah. So you've got a choice. There's no wrong or right answer. However, it should be in some logical place that you can find it and it, and it syncs with the rest of your change of control severance. Yeah. You know, for example, if you've got a severance program, which we probably should talk about that a little bit, you're already using bonus in the definition of pay for determining severance and change of control. Some confuse that and think that covers the bonus plan, but that's really making you hold for a two or three year period from all purposes, base and bonus, it does not address that short year, that in-flight bonus. So severance plan document is a great place to put it. You know, there's other places, but that's probably the most appropriate. Well, that's a great segue into really, I think the next element I wanted to talk about, which is severance arrangements. So 
Tell us more about what should we be thinking about from a severance perspective in an M&A situation? Yes. Okay. So this definitely could be an entire podcast by itself, but an important point or two, as we all know, change of control, there's a heightened level of risk for your executives. So you have a heightened level of severance to offset or address that risk. So still to this day, typically change of control severance for top executives is higher. Your top tier CEO still gets three times base and bonus in a lump sum, by the way, in the second trigger upon the involuntary or constructive employment termination. Next year, it's two, maybe going down to one and a half. Those numbers have become much more conservative over the last couple of years. But I think most understand the concept of severance. The concept that gets lost sometimes is then how does that impact the excise tax? And so you have to make sure that you have a provision of what to do if, in fact, the severance and all of your other parachute payments, including the short-term prorated payout, the, the long-term accelerated investing that Mike talked about, all of those go together to create parachute payments. And so you need to provide in your severance what happens with the excise tax. And in the old days, everybody simply gross up the executive completely because it is individual tax because it's so arbitrary. And with a lot of the focus on this, the proxy advisory firms, asset management first came involved. Overnight, the practice went from either severance plans providing gross ups to not providing a gross up and instead using what's known as an alternative or a valley cap, which in its simplest form simply says, you executive, we're going to give you whichever nets you the highest benefit. Let the chips fall. We're going to give you your severance, all this accelerated investing and payout and you pay your own excise tax. If that number, the net of that is higher than simply capping you at your safe harbor, where you'll get the alternative, whichever is higher. And so what's the problem here preparing? A good number of companies have not addressed them. They don't have the alternative cap language in their severance program. And do note, even though you have a, a change of control severance plan and a general severance, if general severance is paid within a year of a change of control, even though you're not calling it change of control severance, it's still a parachute payment. So you might consider putting that alternative cap language in both your change of control and your general severance program in the event that fact situation occurs. All the points Bob laid out here, the key is not just having these provisions in place, but also effectively communicating them to your senior executive team. If they don't understand their protections, they might start entertaining calls from headhunters and you could potentially risk losing key talent during a critical time. Excellent point. In fact, before I get to the next question, just two thoughts I wanted to make sure that we that don't get lost. One is just that this, you know, the reason we have severance, particularly enhanced severance in a change control is because this is a unique situation where, you know, you're asking your senior executives, particularly your CEO, to proactively go out and find transactions that could eventually, you know, result in them losing their job. So if they don't have any protection in place, there's an inherent conflict of interest. They will still likely do the right thing for shareholders, but there is an inherent conflict. And then the other thing, and Mike, you kind of spoke to this when we first kicked things off, that everything we're talking about here actually has a retention element to it. You know, we talked about outstanding incentives. That is, you said, you know, talked about that being the base level of retention. Good severance also acts as retention because if I'm in a situation where there's uncertainty about the future and we're going into a transaction, if I at least know I'm protected with some severance, it kind of creates a certain level of retention. But 
then we get to the next question I want to ask you, Mike, is so those are all great base level. We have the base level of long-term incentives. We have this severance. They don't always provide the full retention we need. There are sometimes situations where there's just such critical talent, companies feel like they need to do something special. So tell us a little bit about when do those situations occur and how might a company design a special retention? Yeah. So as we move up higher in the, in the pyramid, we encounter what we call special retention incentives. And here's where it starts to get even more narrow in terms of participation. These are designed for a very select group of employees who are deemed critical for the organization's success. And we're talking about limited participation, maybe around 5% of employees. These are individuals that are at higher risk, but also providing high value to the company. And this would not be top five named executive officers. These are individuals that are critical. It's not broad-based. It's very specific individuals who you're targeting and you really don't want to take a chance of losing them. The incentives often come in the form of cash incentives, which is constant. You don't have stock price volatility associated with it. And in general, it's just easy to understand. One important aspect of the award are the payout dates for these cash incentives. And they need to be strategically planned to extend beyond what we call the risk period of the transaction. And this ensures that these key individuals who are most likely to receive these awards are financially motivated to stay with the company through the most critical phases. I think it's also an interesting thing to think about or to point out with retention is there in some ways are two phases of retention because there's a pre-close phase where we need to get our talent to close and hopefully a little bit beyond. And then there's a post-close phase which now the merged company has to worry about. So very often, I think we see companies where they're designing a kind of a shorter term special retention that keeps talent locked in until close. And then you kind of turn it over to the new merged company to say, okay, now it's your responsibility to figure out who do we need long-term and how to retain them. Excellent point. So Bob, I want to dive into another type of special payment with you. Oftentimes we'll hear uh, companies talk about deal incentives or ask about deal incentives. Is it appropriate to grant some sort of special payment or special incentive to people that are directly working on the transaction itself? When is that appropriate? How is that typically designed when it is put in place? Common question, not a common practice. And I would say there's two categories of deal incentives. The first, if a company is actually putting themselves up for sale, they're externally shopping, they're doing roadshows. You might have a deal incentive for a handful of executives or those folks actually working on it to attempt to maximize the price and the value created. I mean, that's a different category. So the typical main category we're talking about is transaction comes in or you've got a due diligence room that needs to be funded, so to speak, and somebody's got to answer all the questions. And so you literally have a very small handful of folks. Typically, it's on the finance and or legal side, maybe HR. It's not the executive officers. Your officer team is already covered by their severance, their golden parachutes, the acceleration of long-term, the short-term stuff period, et cetera. So these are the folks that are literally doing two full-time jobs. So I would look at this as fair pay for the work being conducted. And so you're paying them really an extra 
bonus for all the work that they put into underneath the surface, get all the work done that needs to get done for the transaction to occur and move forward. You know, you might be talking about five to 15 individuals. And I would say the prevalence is low. It might be only less than one third of transactions or even less than that, that you have that type of bonus payment. So as we kind of come towards the end of the conversation, I want to go a little bit down a rabbit hole, not too far down the rabbit hole, but I want to talk a little bit about the technical aspect of how some of these arrangements get taxed. And Bob, you spoke a little bit about this a few moments ago when you were talking about gross-ups, but can you give our listeners a high-level overview of the tax rules? So these would be the golden parachute tax rules, also known as 280G. How do they work and what are some of the things we should understand about them when we're thinking about uh, designing these pay arrangements? Absolutely. My favorite consulting area, right? And so the excise tax, it is complicated, but high level, it's pretty straightforward. It's when you get into details that the interpretation and there are regulations, they're temporary. They were never finalized back in the late 80s and they're in the form of 42 questions and answers. If your issue is one of those questions, you're in good shape, but most are not. And the practitioners have simply adopted that, even though technically they're not authoritative, those contain the interpretations that we all use daily. But the excise tax itself, it's under section 280G and 4999 of the tax code. And it very simply says you as an individual, so it's an individual tax, have to pay a tax you port reported on your 1040 income tax form. On the second page, there's a little box and there's a line taxes, or there's a line that says other taxes. I've always wondered, what is that? Well, golden portion taxes fall into that other tax line, self-reporting. But the tax simply says everything that you get due to or contingent on a change of control that's in the nature of compensation is deemed to be a parachute payment. And all those parachute payments you add up and you compare that then to your individual safe harbor and your safe harbor, and here's where it starts getting a little tricky, is based on your pay in the past. Very specifically, it's pay as reported on your W-2 form. So it's only W-2 pay for the five years averaged into one. So five years prior to the year of the change of control. So if you have a change of control occurring still in 2023, your 23 pay does not go into that five-year average. It's 22 and the four years before that. So as you get near year end, there's clearly a straddling exercise that can be accomplished. And I do want to talk about that in just a minute, but there's so many tricky things. Parachute payments are your severance. Of course, if you get two years of severance, that's pretty clear. This target bonus that you get for the short year may be a parachute payment. It may be a reasonable comp or services rendered prior, but assume that is. You get medical benefit continuation for 18 months under COBRA or two years. That presumably is a parachute payment. And the long-term incentives, here is typically where the largest parachute payment occurs. Depending on the type of vehicle you're using, there's different rules in how you treat the value. So performance shares, because there's a performance goal that overrides payment, the interpretation is, that's a contingency that you don't know is going to be fulfilled, even if you're in the last month of a three-year period. So generally speaking, performance shares, the entire payout is a parachute payment. And you can see, because it's paid or denoted in stock and your stock has run up through the transaction, those could be very large payments that go into the tax calculation. And the things like restricted stock options at best over a passage of time, there's a present value calculation and there's value for accelerated vesting timing. 
you add those two pieces together to get it. And the closer you are to the end of the vesting schedule, the lower the parachute payment. But bottom line, there are some tricks and interpretations that run what exactly is a parachute payment. And then you compare it to your safe harbor. And the safe harbor, it's one times your prior five-year average W-2 compensation. But you can see as your pay is going up year by year, you know, your three-year time years of severance times your current pay is probably more than your prior five-year average pay. So the chance of you being an excise tax position is pretty good depending on other things that are going into that tax. You multiply your one times by three. The tax code actually says 2.99, just to make the math more difficult. But if you are over 2.99 or at three times your base amount or higher, that answers the simple question of whether you're yes or no in an excise tax position. If the answer is no, you're done, forget about it. If it's yes, then you've got to go through these detailed calculations to determine how much you have to pay. The pay, it's a 20% excise tax on the individual in addition to income tax. But here's the trick. The 20% is not levied on everything over three times. It's levied, it goes back, it's levied on everything over one times your base amount. And that same amount, everything over one time is not deductible for income tax purposes to the company. Assuming that's clear and nobody out there has any questions on that, let me mention three very significant abatement strategies that in every transaction more involved, these come into play and we do calculations and modeling determine if you do the right planning ahead of time, you could actually, in most cases, decrease or completely entirely eliminate excise acquisition. But again, it's individual by individual. And the first one I mentioned very simply, it seems kind of basic, don't get terminated. And of course, if you have a private equity for a company and buy you, they're going to terminate all the top executives. That's part of the cost savings. But if the excise tax situation is so bad, if they delay your termination for a bit, there's a 12-month presumption that everything within 12 months before or after is a parachute payment. Once you get beyond that, definitely beyond 24 months, then you get back to general severance and it's not a parachute payment. So if you can delay the payment of severance, that two or three times space and bonus, that by itself clearly reduce parachute payments, you might not be in an excise tax. That's probably not practical in most cases, but it's something worth mentioning. There might be one or two lower level people that would make sense with, but probably not the top executives. The next planning or abatement is very simply to increase your safe harbor. And just backing up a little, remember that's your prior five-year W-2 average. You could have two executives that are paid identically. One has exercised non-qualified stock options. That bargain element, that spread goes into your W-2. The other has an exercise that doesn't go in your W-2, one's going to have a higher safe harbor arbitrarily. One could have been deferring bonuses every year. That means their W-2 is lower. Depending on the actions you're taking, you're going to impact your safe harbor without really realizing it. Thus, the reason is arbitrary. But bottom line, if you're able to straddle a year right now going to 23, if you have a transaction that closes Early in 24, you can accelerate incentives for the 23 year instead of waiting to three months in the 24, accelerate the payment in until, you know, December 1st in the 23. Those amounts will go into your W-2, although you'll be income tax on it earlier. It increases your base amount. So that means three times those amounts divided by five because it's a five year average will have some incremental benefit. And so companies oftentimes accelerate the annual bonus. That's an easy one. 
because you probably know, even though you don't have audited financials, you probably have a very good feel what the bonus is going to be. And so just accelerating the timing, otherwise that's fine. Many companies go further and they accelerate in particular, the three-year performance share that's outstanding that otherwise would have ended the three-year performance period at the end of that calendar year. So again, just accelerating the timing of a known amount. I've been in a situation where companies have accelerated all three overlapping performance share cycles, even though they're only one year or two year into the cycle. Same thing with accelerating restricted stock unit vesting into the prior year to increase the base amount. And do know there's an arbitrage there. There is some parachute payment value of the acceleration in addition to it being part of your base amount. So you really need to look at that and do the calculations. But that's a very common planning technique. Third one I'll talk about is the concept of non-competes. In the old day, you would have a non-compete covenant in your general severance. If you're dealing with a one-off executive termination, you don't want them to go work for a competitor. Change of control agreements didn't have non-competes. You put those on a clear day to give protection to your executives. Why would you put a non-compete? This is one of the issues that's actually in those 42 questions that I mentioned in the tax regs. So there is a basis for it. And very simply says, you know, I mentioned earlier, everything that gets paid due to or contingent on the change of control is a parachute if it's in the nature of compensation. So there's only two things in those regs that are not in the nature of compensation, legal fees. Of course, the attorneys, they're exempted their own payments and consideration for a non-compete is not a parachute payment. So bottom line, if your CEO is getting three years of severance, you can change the wording a little bit, still give him three years or her, but say one year is severance, two years is consideration for the non-compete and the change of control arrangement. And those two years should come out of the entire calculation, won't be a parachute payment and thereby greatly reduce or even eliminate excess tax altogether. Well, last thing I'll say about that is a bit of a subjective determination. What's a non-compete worth? Well, it might be worth more for a CEO than a lower level executive. And if it's only a one-year versus a two-year non-compete, or if you're in states where they're not enforceable anyway, all sorts of issues, you can actually hire an external valuation firm that will give you that. But no, if you get audited and there's a question, some companies because now that's the buyer's problem, but it's your individual executive's problem. So putting this all together, if you have an alternative cap, you ended up capping your executive because that's the bet nest alternative. The IRS sees it and says, no, we don't agree with how you've valued your non-compete. Now you're in an excise tax and your executive's got to pay that. In those cases, it might be proper to have a legal fee reimbursement that the company needs to step in and resolve that conflict for the individual executive or they may get wiped out. So, but bottom line, allocating consideration for a non-compete is not just a valid, it now is a very common planning abatement technique that is built to the tax regulations. So that accelerating pay to increase your base amount and not getting terminated. Good overview, obviously a lot of complicated issues to deal with. And I know you went over that at a very high level, Bob, because each of those things you talked about, you know, there's so many different considerations and pros and cons, even for example, the acceleration that you mentioned from one tax year into the other, you know, you've got to balance that with shareholder perceptions, the risk that the deal doesn't close. You know, like we said earlier, we could spend an hour just talking about all the different nuances, but I think it's a great overview that hopefully our listeners are at least a little bit more educated as to what some of those issues are. This has been a great conversation. I mean, I think, you know, even though M&A transactions don't occur every day for companies, I think most of our listeners probably over the next 
10 or so years are very likely to experience an M&A in their career. Being prepared in advance, understanding these issues and proactively tackling them is definitely something we would recommend. Bob, Mike, thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Brad. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Meridian Compensation Partners. Meridian works with compensation committees to ensure the most effective processes are in place to go beyond mere compliance with governance requirements and create healthy, dynamic relationships between the board, management, and its advisors. Meridian helps boards use compensation to attract and retain critical talent and to make informed business decisions that will link pay and performance, drive business results, increase shareholder value, and mitigate potential risks. Learn more at meridiancp.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Executive Compensation Podcast. You can see more about this episode along with additional executive compensation insights at meridiancp.com. That's meridian, the letter C, and the letter P.com.